welcome to the Training Design Podcast. 45 minutes-ish of practical tips and insight on designing training and learning experiences. I'm Terry Pierce from Untold Play. And I'm Sheridan Webb from the Training Designers Club. Really glad to have you with us here today on the second of our two Easter specials. Uh, and today uh, it's Sheridan's turn. I uh, last time to, uh, waxed lyrical about gains-based learning and incorporating it into learning experiences uh, but Sheridan's going to tell us a little bit today, I think, about uh, her journey over the last couple of years uh, since, we were, since we were last on the air and, uh, and and what you can perhaps learn from that, particularly about communities, I think, Sheridan. Sheridan. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, like like you, Terry, I think um, what happened to us both, I think, um, towards the end of 2019, certainly within 2020, is we were gifted the opportunity to follow our passions a little bit because obviously the world of learning and development changed dramatically um, and although we both loved being learning designers um, we were good at it um, we made a nice living from it um, and I still very much enjoy it we, we did have that opportunity to explore other aspects I think um, and you obviously went down the, the games route and I decided to focus more of my attention into setting up and running a learning community and really expanding the training designers club to be much more than just a free Facebook group. Yeah, it is. And I can vouch for that being a member and uh, getting a lot of interest and enjoyment and benefit from <laughs> being part of it. Um, I mean, it's interesting though, as a kind of, uh, as a kind of jink, I guess, well, what, what took you down that, that community? Why did you choose to do that? Um, a few things, to be honest, you know, when you just get all these sort of subtle signals from the universe saying you maybe you want to give this a go. Um, th there were a number of things. One is I found that the demand was there. I was as, as you were, Terry, you know, uh, I was getting lots and lots of requests from people. Um, have you got anything on? Can I pick your brains about? What do you think of? And I realised that actually people just often needed that second pair of eyes. They needed that refresh. Um, they just wanted to chat things through with people rather than outsource the whole of their job, which is how you and I used to make our livings when someone could outsource the design. Um, and I think the whole uh, working at home, reducing the amount of delivery meant that more and more um, people who would have perhaps not had time to do the design um, wanted to do it themselves, but found themselves maybe lacking experience, lacking inspiration, um, and also lacking a team around them to, to chat things through with. So for one, it was the demand. Um, and for the second one, it fitted with the way that I work. Um, you're a phenomenal example when it comes to reading things and planning your development. I'm very much a do it in the moment sort of a person. So I love to, I have a challenge. I have a question. There's something I can't do. I find a way of dealing with it and then I move on. Um, so this whole very much a responsive way and I work well in response. So um, I know a lot of uh, freelance trainers in particular, they have a signature course, which they then go out and sell. Um, I'd always responded to, well, this is what we need. Uh, but I wasn't getting that from corporates anymore. I was getting that from individuals. And what I did notice was that there were lots of similarities with what people were asking. And I thought, it seems silly to have this conversation 12 times when I can have it once if I put everyone together in the same place 
um, and we can all have those conversations as a group. So, so they were the two main drivers and it just gets the, the final one that sort of really assured me that I was doing the right thing is when you get to a certain age um, and it is impolite to ask a lady her age, um, you do start thinking about, you know, what happens after your working life. And I wanted to share my experience more widely, I think, because um, I take pleasure from seeing great training courses and great training programs being designed and, and also from hearing what other people do. And so there were lots of drivers to it. And I think the fact that when COVID came along and kind of really slowed down what had been my, my core business, um, it just gave me that opportunity um, as you have the opportunity to go into games. Excellent. Really good stuff. And yeah, I can definitely relate to seeing, you know, seeing which way the wind is blowing and kind of going with it a little bit. Uh, that's, that's a little part of my journey as well, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that makes a lot of sense of why you chose to do it. Uh, you've chosen it as a topic for today's podcast. So presumably you think that it can really offer people who are actively engaged in learning design right now some real value. How, how is it relevant to them? Well, it's um, obviously it's, we need to think about learning design in a broader sense. So we're not talking about designing an event, you know, a half day workshop or a piece of e-learning here. It's not relevant to that, but it is relevant if you are designing a whole learning system, I think. So if you're employed in an organization or even if you're freelance and you work on longer term programs, um, the community element is often overlooked and it's such a vital part of um, really gluing all the separate pieces of that learning journey together and also being able to give much, much more than you can give on your own. It shares the responsibility, I think. So it's not all about you, the facilitator, or you, the designer, having to do all the hard work. Um, if you can give the right nudges, and you, you were talking about that in your podcast, and give the right opportunities, um, the community knows way more than one individual could. So everyone's a winner. We just have to learn to harness it. Mm. Um, and just linked to that, um, many people will um, will be aware of Mark Williams, who owns Giraffe Pad. And if you're not aware of Mark Williams and Giraffe Pad, then put it in the show notes, Terry, and we'll send people to go and look at that yeah. fantastic um, tool, which is all about creating learning journeys. So what I think we have all woken up to is learning is no longer an event. It's not a one day or a two day thing that you go on and you become transformed. It's something that happens over time. So giraffe pad is a great way to administer that. And having a community element of that makes such a difference to the impact of that learning, to the application of learning um, and to the longevity of it as well. Yeah. Thing that I just thought about as you were talking there, I mean, well, actually, one the first thing to say there, I mean, you're saying it's not necessarily useful on, on, on the session level, and, and I think it depends on the community because, you know, maybe you didn't want to say this because you didn't want it to be too much like a plug, but um, the Training Designers Club is, is a great community for helping people to build sessions. So, you know, community is a great way to learn, and, and it's a great way to learn about anything, including learning design. Yes. Um, <laughs> but what I also wanted to say was... Um, the thing about uh, in, engaging people about, so you're saying, you know, there's, there's, there's so much expertise there in the community and it's also how things are moving. And I think part of why it's it, things are moving that way is because it engages people and it, yeah. you know, it links back to some of the things that I was saying in mine as well. And um, there's a couple of books I've read on this topic that I'd just like to drop in here too. Oh, I knew I could rely on you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if, 
people are interested in reading a bit more. So there's a, a book, Machine Platform Crowd by Eric Brynjolfs and, and Andrew McAfee. Uh, and that talks about how the whole world really is moving from this very centralized thing where, you know, a centralized group of people told you what was what and sold you what was what, uh, moving to a very much more flat kind of structure where everyone can get involved in a lot more things and have more power. Um, and a very similar kind of tack is taken in the book um, New Power by Jeremy Hymans and Hen- Henry Timms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in particular has got some great examples in it of, of how, you know, you can really engage people if you give them input and time and power. And if I can just give one example that that book gave that really stuck with me that uh, pe- uh, listeners might remember, which was uh, the vote for the naming of a ship. Uh, which was both the vote came up as Boaty McBoatface. Yes, and they had to honour it. <laughs> well, they, they didn't. That's the thing. They didn't honour it. They, they sort of did. They decided it was too silly, <laughs> so they ended up calling it David Attenborough. Um, <laughs> and then they na- named one of the little kind of side uh, rafts uh, Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> but this book, New Power, just talks about that whole process and how empowering it was to get people involved in the boat in the first place, even if they were doing it for slightly silly reasons that if they'd have followed through with it, they could have built on that and people would have followed Boating McBase Face around the world and it would have given <laughs> such a higher profile to this exploration boat. And they missed that opportunity and created a lot of negative uh, publicity by, you know, by this this principle, oh, it has to be, a, you know, a yeah. serious thing. You know? So anyway, this is a, bit, a little bit of a tangent, but I do, do think there's a lot of power in what you're talking about and giving people the community and making it theirs. Yeah, I mean, it... it there's a couple of other things as to why, why it is relevant and it is exactly that it's making sure that as part of your your needs analysis um that it is you know you're hearing stuff from the horse's mouth so they're much more user-led in terms of um what people are saying that they need not necessarily what top management think they need um i know that we have to be diplomats and we have to appease all our stakeholders but you really are hearing it from the horse's mouth. This is what's coming up time and time again. Um, and, you know, we've talked about on the previous episode that the curse of knowledge is that sometimes we think people know this stuff and actually by giving them a community, we realise that they don't. Or something that we think is very important, they're going, do you know what? We, we either know that or it's not relevant and we don't need to worry about it. So it, it can make your... Um, help you in your training needs analysis for sure it can help you in your direction and the other thing it links to which i know is largely discredited in a way because it's often misquoted is the charles jenning the 70 20 10 Mm. model about the fact that informal learning is the way that we learn most of the things for life generally Um, and the community is informal learning at its best Mm. So we don't need to go on a course. I mean, you know what it's like in our community. We, we have um, face-to-face meetings. We have um, a Facebook group. My goodness, the thing that's taken off is the WhatsApp group. It's bonkers in there, um, but it's so responsive and it gives people what they want when they want it. So, yeah. you know, that is something that um, even if you're employed in a large organisation, um, can be incredibly useful because I know how busy L&D people are and you can't personally respond to every single need that's coming out there. Whereas if you've got a thriving community, um, people will support each other. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the amount of value that in that community 
people are adding because they want to you know yeah. uh you know you you uh you're, you're not paying them they're, they're they're saying okay i could just be here and take and not give mm. uh but actually they're giving and you know in some cases leading sessions or you know taking a lot of their own time to to answer other people's questions yeah and and it's that whole building on the knowledge thing i think that works really really well and um and i remember hearing stories years ago um, about how People prefer to learn from peers a lot of the time and, and that peer-based learning that there's no other conduit for it because your peer knows exactly what your challenge is. They know exactly what you're going through and they can provide exactly the right solution. Um, and it's just, it's instant and it's so, it is so applicable and it's so immediate. Um, and when people get that immediate feedback and they can apply it straight away whilst it's still, you know, at the, at the opportune moment, um, we see results and then businesses see results and then L&D is suddenly delivering against all these metrics that it's supposed to, that it might have struggled to when it was just providing e-learning on an LMS or running you know, one-day workshops. Mm-hmm. I guess it's part of it that people feel like they've got a, maybe a standing within a community or a position or a role sometimes and then they want to fulfil that role, you know, if they're seen even unofficially as you know, an expert or a, a helpful person within the community, then they want to continue to be that. Mm. Yeah, there, there is some, as we get to know each other, and, and this, again, would work fantastically in an organisation where you've got people either home working or in different locations, you do quickly get to know, oh, I'm going to ask this person or this person, because they really understand this, they really have got the expertise um, and you do learn very quickly um, who can add value where. Um, and then, of course, you get new people in who, and they shake everything up because they ask some questions that maybe haven't been asked for a while. And new people come to the fore because, you know, we've all been developing since the last time that question was asked. So it, it never gets old. That's the other great thing with it. It's not like blowing the dust off your training manual from six years ago. Um, this stuff's all current. Yeah, great. Um We've talked quite a lot about different things that make a learning community work as a way to learn. Is there anything else that really makes it helpful as a way to learn? Um, as you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it. <laughs> um, I think its agility and its and the fact that it's personalised are really key. Um, the people get to solve their own problems. I like the fact that it's very safe and supportive. Um, particularly when you're with your peers. So obviously the Training Designers Club is aimed at L&D professionals um, who have to keep a certain face. You know, have to keep, you know, we have to seem in control and seem in charge, whether we're in our organisations or whether we're client facing. And to actually put your hand up and say, I don't know, it can be quite a scary thing sometimes you you know you may not want to ask that question to your manager um, or admit that to your client so to be able to have this safe environment and I know that some communities do offer um, anonymous posting for example so you don't always have to um, say I mean our community doesn't we we're all open honest with each other but if you're thinking of setting up a community that is definitely something that you could do you could post ask people to post questions to you as a moderator and then you could just put all questions out there on behalf of other people um, and see what comes up so it's a very safe space i think to ask the stupid question mm-hmm. um, and i think it's just it's it's quite creative i think because you end up 
the number of times people say, I've never even thought about that. Oh, that sounds interesting. Tell me more about it. So a community allows you to expose yourself to a broader range of um, challenges, topics, whatever it is that you might otherwise come across. And particularly in organisations, when you think about one of the constant challenges um, that we're asked to go in and help with is this silo mentality. Um, if you've got people from all different parts of the business in a learning community, that breaking down of barriers and that understanding of each, of each other's um, perspectives is going to happen quite naturally. And it's going to happen um, when it's appropriate to do so in, in a very organic way, I suppose, um, with the purpose of helping each other to understand rather than blaming each other when things go wrong. So it, it can tip the whole the whole um, balance, I suppose, of those sort of interpersonal relationships at work. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'm just thinking about kind of people using this really practically uh, and what they can kind of learn from what you've learned, key skills that they should try and put into action. What, what do you think people can do if they want to say, okay, yeah, I'm bought in. Uh, I can, uh, I want to put a learning community together uh, as part of my, you know, part of this program. What, what can mm. they do to make it really work? Oh, <laughs> I'm still only two years into running the community, Terry, and I'm, I am nowhere near. I am still very much learning. Um, but if I go right back um, before I started the Training Designers Club, there were lots of chats on other social media platforms. So Twitter was big for a while and everyone's got their little hashtag and their little hour where, where they chat about things. Some of those have taken off, don't get me wrong, and some of them haven't. I also saw at that time quite a lot of people saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could all get together um, and share ideas on looking between the lines? Often that was a, I've got a problem and I can't afford to pay anybody to help me, who will come and help me? Um, but then there was also the, okay, that's great. So we've all met on LinkedIn, for example. So let's now go and set up something on Slack. And it's like, why? Why are we're all chatting here quite nicely, quite organically, because this is where we are. And now you're asking me to go and have this chat somewhere else. I've got to set something new up. I've got to remember to go into it. I've got to learn how it works. And that is the sort of thing that just kills um, any community. It kills conversation. So I think in a roundabout way, um, there is something about platform, which I will talk about, but if you're thinking this would be a fantastic idea as an L&D professional, I will just create one. Um, we can probably all think of examples where a lot of time and effort has gone into you know, setting up something on Yammer. That was the big one, wasn't it? The big internal one. And obviously now with Teams, you have your different channels. So there's all sorts of things that people can use. It's all been set up. It's been well thought through by the L&D team and they've decided how it's going to work and they launch it and it's like tumbleweed. Mm going across and nobody engages with it so I think the first learning point is for me anyway and, and I would love genuinely love to hear from anyone who has managed to create a community the opposite way around is you it has to come from the need first mm. so not the solution so there has to be a group of people out there giving very strong signals that they would find this valuable and they would be willing to engage with it. I think that makes a lot of sense in the context that you're talking about. 
I mean, I wonder if something worked relatively well, if it's a large kind of um, online course where a lot of people are going through it at the same time and then they can comment on each other's stuff. Uh, and it, it's, it's in that case, it's been opposed, imposed by the designer, but it's guaranteed that there are enough people and it's been built into the course, into the programme in such a way as it's an integral part of the programme. So it's almost like the need is, is created by the programme. Yes, and I think... Sorry, it's not been voiced by the people, but it is created by the programme. Yeah, yeah. and and that links into what we were saying before about uh, the giraffe pad, you know, that whole learning journey platform, is I think we can encourage that discussion initially. So, uh, as you say, around everybody read this article, tell us three things that you take from it, or everybody watch this or share your work. So it is a task-focused community activity initially, um, and I think that is a great way um, to start a community off if there isn't this uh, you know, clamour that people want a general community. So to have something very specific. And what you'll find, Terry, is in organisations, these subgroups exist automatically anyway, because we are social animals. Um, and all the, all the engineers, they will have got together, they'll have a little group going on that L&D know nothing about. Um, and they that will be their go-to place yeah. so, so sometimes we don't need to reinvent the wheel we just need to harness what's already there and um, make it more accessible make it uh, broaden it out you know amplify it a little bit mm. yeah and I think that fits with some of the things we were talking about about giving people the power you know uh, you don't want to kind of come in and say this is how it's going to be you want to say well let's decide for all between all of us how it's going to be and make it work yeah yeah so if the engineers have got there's 12 of them in this group and they're constantly chatting to each other all day long um, why is that group working what sort of things are being discussed what sort of questions come up time and time again and um, what what could the organization do what or what could i do to help make that easier for you i wonder is there is there a scaling thing though where you know people might be getting together on whatsapp or a Facebook group or LinkedIn perhaps. And those apps, that's not what they're primary, well, I guess that is what they're primarily for, but but not for a large scale or not mm. for quite complex multi-topic discussions. And so you get to this place where, and I've seen this happen, um, you, you'd like to take it elsewhere, but uh, you don't want to go through that thing of taking it elsewhere, but the platform's not ideal for the purpose either yeah it's um that is a challenge and and thankfully so far um the training designs club is is manageable but i i do know exactly what you mean whenever whenever we introduce change of any kind um in any business um people adopt that change at different rates people some people opt out of the change and they decide they don't want to be involved anymore um so that constant evolving of a community, I think, is, is a key characteristic of it. I mean, in two years, the Training Science Club has evolved and it will continue to evolve. Um, don't want to talk too much about um, you know, tech and things like that, because, as you know, I'm not particularly technically minded. Um, but, yeah, you do have to keep looking at other ways to host it, other ways to engage people, because if you've got a community with 500 people in it, you can't have 500 people on a call. So how, how are you going to manage that? How are you going to give everybody a voice? Um, so we do have to, th- there's an awful lot of thinking about um, 
sort of inclusive inclusivity yeah. when you when you are running a community and, and it, it does get more complex as things get get bigger for sure mm-hmm. just trying to think of uh what's going to be practical for listeners uh it's just thinking one of the things that i've kind of started to pick up uh from from you and from other com- organizers and communities that i'm part of is uh, you know, in, in, for my own future reference, is uh, specific kind of tactics, I guess you might call it, to engage, to draw mm. people in, to, to get people um, to get people discussing and talking. So uh, one that happened to, to me, I, I was asked to be uh, the, the, the subject or to lead and ask me anything on a, on a community, a learning community I'm part of. And I thought that was a really great way to so it made me feel good that I was asked. It gave yeah. some value in the questions that I answered. It created a kind of event. So I just thought that was quite a cool little thing to to kind of just push in there and, and, and make happen to drive more engagement and so on. So I just wonder, uh, have you got other things? Well, I know you have got other things that you've done that, that have kind of driven more engagement or driven a certain direction. Um, I think you have to tell me if this is what you're thinking of, Terry, because um, uh, I'm so immersed in it. I, I don't, uh, as you know, I, I'm, I'm very much a, a res- responder. Um, it is about responding to the needs um, of the individuals. It's about taking on board their suggestions sometimes. So, for example, one of our founding members um, noticed that there were quite a lot of coaches in the group. People who They do do training, but they were predominantly coaches so they joined the training designs club to help um sort of transfer their skills from a coaching environment to a to a training environment um and she said um, call out for andanella um here she said could could we have a little subgroup just for coaches and i said why not um so andanella actually manages that um so they get together on a monthly basis they have their own topics um and they you know, they organise themselves, they decide what it is they're going to talk about. Um, we also have other ad hoc events, such as, uh, so for example, I notice in the designer drop-ins, so every second or third week, someone comes with a question, I need to design some training on difficult conversations, what have we got? So again, that's a, tell you what, let's have an event. Let's have an event where we just talk about how we might design some training covering difficult conversations. Um, and different people turn up to that because it's a it's a very specific thing rather than a general thing. So um, I don't know if that's yeah. what you're thinking of, but it is that the difference I think providing these these specific points that to get attention, but also still allowing the general um, Q and A uh, to yeah, happen absolutely. as a man. There's also your regular events, right? So uh, as well as your ad hoc events, you've got your uh, designers drop in and lunch and learns. Yeah. Which, you know, they might not be appropriate for other communities, but they're good examples of uh, bringing people together in a way that uh, helps their needs, helps the specific need, training design in this case, um, but also provides a point of contact. Because I guess listening to conversations so far, you might think of it more as being a thing that's on a, on a messaging app or something, but actually that face-to-face contact seems really valuable to me. Yeah, it does. And I have to say that the weekly designer drop-ins that we have are the fav- my favourite part of the week. Um, it's it's always, um, I, we always learn something. We always solve problems. Um, it's a great way to actually get to know people. I mean, I... I'm not exaggerating, Terry, and say I have made good friends in the Training Designers Club. I have never met any of them in person, apart from you. So, <laughs> um, but um, 
but yeah, and they are genuinely my good friends because we see each other on that regular basis. Um, and it does give you the confidence. And I know that people within our community have given work and they've gained work, which was never the purpose of the community. It's absolutely not. But the fact is, it's that whole no like and trust thing. Um, so when you're building that um, in a community of, of, of sort of individuals, as I have done, or in an organisation, say to help break down silos and things like that, the, the impact, the ripples of that community can be felt far and wide, I think, and can go much, much beyond the actual learning event. But, you know, bringing it back to that learning event and linking it into some of the things that you were talking about with, with challenges. Um, so if we have a community um, as part of our programme, and we do challenge everybody to post something or share something or, you know, make an appointment with someone else, um, have half an hour talking through something. It really strengthens the bonds between them, but it also really embeds the learning and because they're able to explore it in a way that suits them um, without being, you know, feeling that they're being scrutinised, without being put under time pressure. They can really adapt it to their own learning environment. And that application of learning, for me, is why I got into training design in the first place, because I wanted people to be able to learn something differently and go away and apply it. That, that is my sole motivation. Um, and now I'm just finding a different way of doing that through the, the creation of a learning community. And I think it's such a valuable addition to any um, L&D department or any long-term programme. I just, uh, I wouldn't be without it now at all. Excellent. Now that you've raised the, the, the kind of spectrum of it, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something myself about uh, the potential in thinking around how gamification can advance the uh, aims of communities. And, you know, I see that in lots of different places. I mentioned last week about uh, the Octalysis group being a good uh, place to go for gamification mm. advice, but there, uh, the Octalysis the community is, is uh, really, really nicely gamified. And there are lots of examples out there of, you know, uses of some fairly simple game elements like badges or, um, you know, upvoting each other's contributions and things like this that uh, have re gained real successes when they're used intelligently mm. when they're used well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not technically minded enough to, to do those sorts of things. And to be honest, um, you know, but one of the challenges I have <laughs> is um, I've spent a lot of time, you know, creating a website that people tend not to go to. Um, even though there's loads of great stuff there because their first instinct is to, is to turn to each other um, for the help. So it's very much a people first, a, a tech second um, approach. But I think what you do have the opportunity to do is something I, I make a very specific effort to do is I send out a weekly roundup of everything that's happened in our community. Um, and so all the discussions, this is what we've been talking about. Here are the resources that have been shared um, thank you to so-and-so, you know, for highlighting this. And here's a book that's been recommended by so-and-so. And it's it's a way of recognising um, the contribution by the people who have taken the time and effort to do that, as you say, off their own back, they didn't need to. But it's also to include those people who aren't so involved in the active discussions, because we do have members in the community who, who aren't you know, chat-focused um, but they still get value. They get value from a more reflective 
um, aspect in the fact that they and they do feel that they can reach out to these people because they're being name checked. We're, we're getting to raise the profile of people in that community. So we get to know who are the various experts um, and where what areas people work in. So again, it's just a great way of um, so it's the whole group knowledge is way better than than our individual knowledge can ever be. And ultimately, what learning designers want, I think, is to be able to shortcut things because we never have enough time in the day. So if I know, for example, I've got to put something together for next week and it needs to be completely different to anything I've done before. And I think, oh, how can I bring it to life? I know for a fact that if I contact Leanne Davies, she will have a fantastic idea for me. So it saves me three hours trying to find something. It's just such a shortcut. It, it's um it's, it's fantastic it's often easier to solve someone else's problem than it is to solve your own absolutely it you know it, we see that all the time um because you you do get bogged down in your own work very much so and, and that's why the design of drop-ins are such a success because in one hour we can solve four people's problems and they're going oh my goodness i've spent hours on this and you've solved it in 10 minutes and it's like oh you're such a genius it's like, no we're not such a genius. It's just we are coming at it with a completely fresh pair of eyes. Mm, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Which uh, I guess the, the one, maybe one thing to say there is that that's really valuable for that community in particular because there's so many freelancers uh, who are working kind of on their own. Uh, it's not. It's not freelancers. Not just freelancers. There are. Um, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of um, L and D employed L and D professionals who are in small teams. Awesome. So yeah, quite often they are. They're it. They're the entire department. Um, and, you know, it's very difficult to get creative ideas when you sit next to Steve from accounts, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> Steve Rodiel there. <laughs> <laughs> Who's a lovely guy, but knows nothing of training. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. I, I mean, I think we've ranged around a lot of the benefits, a lot of the practical steps, things to avoid, things to do. Is there any other advice that you would give to learning designers who are thinking of making learning communities part of what they're doing? Um, I think you alluded to one of the key things that perhaps haven't um, il uh, illustrated clearly enough is, is start small and actually start with a focus as well. Because if you just say, hey, let's have a community, people don't know what to talk about. They don't know how to contribute. Um, so initially, I think don't be too ambitious with it start with asking for specific contributions you do very much have to lead by example in the early stages you do have to do a lot of the the heavy lifting yourself initially but when people start to see oh this is the sort of content that people are looking for this is the sort of you know uh, way we're being encouraged to contribute you can gradually start to take a step back and, and let that aspect because that becomes embedded then you can leave that to kind of run itself. And then you can go and think about, you know, let's level up, let's go to level two. Terry, you've got me talking gamification here. So, so, so how can we then add another layer to this um, or another aspect to it? So I think some communities fail where we try and be too ambitious too quickly. Um, so definitely start simply because you're going to waste an awful lot of time um, if, you, if you try and do it all at once and it will overwhelm people. And that's when people will just check out. Um, so very simple contributions and ease of access is so important. I, I hinted at it before. So if your organisation uses Teams, run the darn thing on Teams. Start out with, get your channel set up and do it that way. 
don't force people to a platform that they're not familiar with because they're not in the habit of going there and you know and and they'll be reluctant to learn something new mm-hmm. um, they will people will always go for the easiest option mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why you know little ad hoc short sharp events are so useful so you can have you know um little tea time tips you can have you know coffee time drop-ins so every day from 11 till half past come and ask me anything i'm, I'm here um just drop in and actually that's how my my drop-ins actually started like that terry i would put my zoom on and said it was almost like i was in an office and it's like open door policy drop drop by my desk between 11 and 12 yeah, um, and people, people yeah, and people would come in on their own. They'd ask me one question, and then they'd start off again. Yeah. Um, and that's how the drop-in started. And as people realised that they were very helpful, and they started to say, "Oh, well, someone else is here. I'll just wait and see what their challenge is." And now they turned out where people turn up bang on time at the start. They stay for the whole hour. Um, I'm kicking them out at the end, you know, because everyone's got so much to say. So it, but that that. But the fact is that was an easy way to engage with the community. It's just my Zoom room is open, pop in if you want to ask me anything at all. So that is, I think, you know, a really important learning point. And if you're running a, a program, if you're associated to the program, you can link it to the previous module, for example, say, got any questions about this module, or if you want to, you know, talk to me about what you've applied or anything else you've seen, pop in. Let, let's, let's talk about that. You know, you might not want to ask it in a full group. There's there's lots and lots of different ways. But I think um, if it's okay for me to just sort of mention some of the key skills I think you need when running a community, bearing in mind I'm still very much learning. Um, I've mentioned a few times I'm not a technical expert, but my technical expertise has improved no end from where it was. I mean, I really was a Luddite and now I can find my way around websites and such things um, because you need them. Uh, and that's been a massive learning curve for me. People need to be able to access things. So cataloging information, making events accessible, making it easy for people to join them. Um, in my case, obviously, it's the VIP membership is a paid community. So I have to set up all of that and getting people um, inducted into the community. So that all needs to, to happen. Um, I'm very much linked to that is the curation side, which we um, our very first podcast was about being a curator. And that's very much my role now. So I'm a, I'm a community leader and curator. So I just scoop up useful things um, and I make them accessible to members. And then, crucially, I signpost them. Um, and that that's something else that happens in the newsletter to say oh these are the new resources by the way so otherwise people don't think to look yeah absolutely keeping things in front of mind yeah mind um and i think just a couple of the other things is that um keeping your ears open for those themes that are coming out um i i made the mistake in the early days of trying to respond to every single question and every single need um, and it was it was overkill for people. And it was like just sometimes, oh, it was just a casual question. Didn't need you to go and spend three hours researching something for me, you know. So I keep my I keep attuned now to what the themes are and what the, what the current questions are coming up. Um, and another big 
skill and it's something thankfully I really enjoy is connecting people. So it's to run a learning community. I know I just said in the early days, it kind of does rely on you, but as it grows, it's not about me anymore. It's I am just one person in that community that can add value. So I am learning to accept that I don't always have the answer and that's okay. Mm. What matters is I know somebody who probably has the answer. Yeah. And then you're building not just that person's capacity to answer that question, but also the links of the group. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, it leads into this whole agile approach that we need. And, you know, yes, my community is about learning design, but it's not just designers that are in there. It's any L&D professional who needs to put something together. But your, your community, you know, could be about anything at all. Um, but the fact is, just knowing who's in there, knowing what strengths they have, allows that community to be completely up to date, completely responsive, um, because the, the problem with traditional training design is the time it takes. So we, we identify the need, we research the need, we do the scoping out, we design the solution, we pilot it, and then we roll it out. And sometimes it's just too late. Mm. Just sometimes. And we've done great work, um, but we've, we've, missed, we've missed the opportunity for it to have maximum impact. So um, not saying that we should abandon traditional training because, you know, for for the things that we know are come up year after year, it's still very, very worthwhile part, uh, part of the L&D strategy. But a lot of things um, are very much in the moment and having that community available to help address those things as and when they come up, I think is so important. Yeah, well, I think if people are used to being able to get those answers, you know, if I need, I remember when I bought, uh, I bought the house before the house I'm living in now. I bought a big DIY manual uh, mm. because I thought that's what I should do because it was the first house that we bought and I thought I'll buy a DIY manual. It's got all these different things that you can do and how to do them. And then it sat on a shelf and it gathered dust because every <laughs> single time I encountered a new problem, I looked it up on YouTube. Yeah. And that's how people are used Or you to ask learning. somebody. Yeah, that's yeah. how people are used to learning now that, that actually everything is is there not everything but most things are there if you want to go on a search for them um so you want to play into that yeah yeah Yeah. and i think it's just um depending on what's driving your desire to put a community into place people do like to feel valued and rewarded um and it doesn't have to be a you know a gift or a prize or anything like that i mean thankfully the vast majority in the Training Designs Club in the VIP community are rewarded by the fact that they get helped out with their challenges. So they help someone. It's very much I scratch your back, you scratch mine. So the reward um, is intrinsic. But particularly when you're starting out, you might want to reward your top contributor or something like that to encourage people because you are asking them to give their time, give their knowledge, um, give their resources you know, freely mm. and it's very important that they know that's appreciated i think definitely definitely good stuff i think we've probably uh, got to the time we want to spend on that if you i think we probably have <laughs> all of the uh, you know i think there's a, there's a packed uh, episode full of useful stuff there for anybody who is interested in going further on communities yeah I'd be, I'd be genuinely interested um, if people do set one up 
um, because everyone's journey is different, um, you know, because we're all serving different communities. So it would just be lovely to hear, um, you know, when people have set one up, they've gone quite a different route. So how did they make it work? Or equally, if you've had any challenges with trying to set up a community, let me know. Um, and I, I'd be happy to sort of make, try, try to give some advice. I can't necessarily do it, but, you know, this is how we learn. We learn from, when I mean, you talked about in your episode, Terry, about allowing people to fail great thing about a community is you don't have to make all the mistakes yourself you can learn from other people's good stuff so time for the mini topic yes yes um enough hearing from me so i think you've got something that is um relevant to communities and relevant to learning generally uh terry i know it's something that we talked about quite recently about application of learning and changing behaviors Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's something that keeps coming up again and again for me in in game based games based learning is uh, that you know how does it help to change behaviour? And so I keep coming back to different models of behaviour change. And the one that stands head and shoulders above the rest, actually, uh, because it's nice and simple and powerful at the same time, is uh, the behavioural model by B.J. Fogg. Now I, I'm sure that. If, a number of people listening will be familiar with it, but I'll just mention how it works because it's, it's really simple. Um, it says that in order to get somebody to do something, to, to behave a certain way, exhibit a certain behavior, then they need three things. They need the uh, motivation. They need to kind of want to do it. They need to see the value in it or, or have a desire and urge to do it. So motivation, that uh, the ability they need to, to, to have the skill or capacity to do it and, and realize that they do so motivation plus ability but also then they have to be prompted to do it at the time when you want them to do it. So there has to be a kind of trigger or a prompt uh, sometimes that model gets called b equals map b equals map and mm-hmm. motivation ability prompt so that in itself i think is just a great uh, model and I, I keep going back to it and thinking okay so what do i want the learner player to be doing now and have they got these three things and often if they're not doing what you want them to do it's because they're missing one of those three things. And that can apply to in the lesson, in the game, or it can apply if you're talking about, you know, you want them to exhibit behaviours when they're back in the workplace or, or back in... in or in life. a community. Or in the community. Um, so all of that I've I been fairly aware of for a long time. What I've become more recently aware of, actually, is some of the resources uh, that are that, that really expand that and make it even more useful. So there's, there's free resources online that... Uh, uh, BJ Fogg makes available. Uh, one is the uh, behavioral grid, and then linked to that, there's the behavioral wizard. And what these do is they, they actually um, break down different kinds of behaviors and give some really, really useful suggestions for what kind of things might help uh, in, in those instances. So, so I'll try to explain what I mean, but I'll put the, the resource in the show notes. Um, so it breaks down into uh, whether you're wanting this behavior one time or over a period of time or from now on. So those right. are the kind of uh, rows in the grid, if you, uh, if you like, uh, you know, one time, period of time, from now on. And then the columns in the grid are, is it a new behavior? Is it a familiar behavior? Is it that you and a behavior that want to be increased? Is it behavior that you want to be decreased? Or is it behavior you want them to stop? So there's these five columns and three rows mm-hmm based on all these different kinds of behavior. And if you think about it, you know, some things you want people to stop doing, something that's unproductive, 
or you want them to just do this one thing one time, but at the right time. Yeah. There's all these kind of combinations. And if you just put, you know, work out which of those combinations you want, you've got these 15 spaces on the grid. And actually the behavior wizard takes you into all these different uh, examples and ideas around it. So if you go into, for instance, uh, you want it to be a behavior that happens from now on, but it's a familiar behavior, then, you know, looking at the page now, and that gives you uh, examples, including, you know, drink two bottles of water each day from now on, or uh, buy Apple computers from now on, or, you know, these are just... Product placement, stop it. (laughs) This is the example given on the page. Join the training designers club from now on. (laughs) Um, Anyway, but this is just to illustrate examples. And then it kind of uh, talks a little bit more about it and gives, uh, you know, uh examples of it being done really well uh you know different routes to that kind of behavior the steps just lots and lots of inspiration if if you identify that as your specific kind of behavior change that you're wanting then you can just get loads of inspiration from that page uh things like uh you know how facebook's done that really really well in terms of getting people to log on every day and look at facebook or uh, you know, lots and lots of case studies like that, uh, Foursquare, people like that. Um, and then, you know, what you can learn from each of those case studies that you might be able to apply to your learning, your community, whatever. That is definitely going in the resources section of the Training Designers Club because it that, that's exactly the sort of thing that we need. And I think this um, desire to create practical is applied is one of the things that you, you and I um got together in the first place mm, yeah definitely definitely so i mean not, not too much discussion i don't think on that one i'm happy to have any more discussion but i just wanted to kind of signpost that resource because it's to me it's, it's just a great source of inspiration it's free it's easy to use yeah and that's exactly the sort of thing that we love isn't it and it's um i think our love of um, application of training um rather than the theory behind it, although I know you do love to, to understand the theory. So that's one of the things that, that brought us together in the first place. So that will definitely be going in the Training Designers Club as a useful resource. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. So that brings us to, I think, more or less the end of this second Easter special. Um, maybe it might be worth us saying a few words about the future. So, yes, Um I'm gutted, by the way, but it does seem a little bit, um, I I don't know, um, given that neither of us are designing training as a full-time job anymore, it almost feels a little bit fraudulent (laughs) um, for us to to keep going. Um, However, um, we're still very much involved in learning design in different formats now, as as hopefully these two episodes have have explained it. So it's... um, Assuming that I can get to grips with the technology, the idea is that the training design podcast will return later in the year in a slightly different format. Um, I'm going to keep it a little bit shorter. Um, It's going to, um, I'm going to host it on a regular basis, but each week or most weeks at least, um, there'll be a different person joining me just to talk about a specific aspect of training design. And um, initially, at least, these people will be members of the Training Designs Club VIP community, because as I've discussed on this episode, there's so much experience um, and, you know, so many different aspects of knowledge that we can share um, I just thought that was a natural way for us to continue and I enjoy listening to a podcast when I'm walking about so um, I thought why don't we just continue it 
Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, I've got so much going on at the moment. I wish I could be part of it, but uh, I have got some plans in the pipeline for some games focused uh, productions as well as my YouTube channel. There may be a video related podcast in my future, but I will be very games focused, but I will be very happy to pop in on the training design podcast as, as as a guest as as your co-host very occasionally um if if i'm invited you you can come anytime you like terry anytime you like um we always learn so much from you um it, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you about practical training design so there's no um, there's no time scale on this yet but um that, that's the intention and obviously we'll let you know when that starts to happen brilliant so I think that just leaves us to say thanks for listening. Uh, it's been great to be back here uh, on for these two Easter specials. Uh, as always, get in touch. Tell us what you thought. Ask us questions. Uh, you can get in touch with me via untoldplay.com where you can sign up to the mailing list. Uh, you can also contact me at terry at untoldplay.com or you can uh, sign, uh, sign up to connect with me on LinkedIn uh, under my name, Terry Pierce. And I would definitely recommend um, checking out Terry's YouTube channel. And I get a lot of newsletters and Terry's is one of the ones that I do actually read um, because he puts, as you can imagine, he puts a lot of thought into it, don't you, Terry? So it's it's always worth me taking time to read your, your emails when you send them out. And obviously, if you want to get in contact with me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Sheridan Webb. Um, but the best place to find me is at the Training Designers Club. So if you do a search for that, you'll find the website. Um, you can join as a free member in the Facebook group. But the best way to get the maximum benefits is to join us as a VIP member. And you'll get um, to be part of this fantastic community that I've been talking about in this episode. But um, it has been a joy to to run these podcasts with you terry and uh, end of an era but um it's just a, a, another phase another phase that's all it is yeah each end is a beginning no <laughs> absolutely um very much enjoyed it and uh, i look forward to to listening into some of the ones in the new season okay so right i think that's us so thank you for listening um and you know if you've got any topics that you want to discuss in the new look um, or if you feel that you want to come in and have a chat with me about them, then please do get in touch. The Training Design Podcast also has its own Facebook page, so you can always leave us a message there as well. Brilliant. Great to speak to you as always, Sheridan. And you, Terry. Take care. Thanks.